From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Slavery in the United States is often thought to have been an institution of the American South. But Western states played a part as well. In Utah, for example, a law passed in 1852 made slavery and the slave trade legal. And this law was passed under the urging of the state's first territorial governor, Brigham Young, who was also, at that same time, the president and prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Young made his beliefs about slavery clear in a debate that was held in 1852 over the rights of black people in Utah Territory. And today we're going to discuss what he and others said in words that have recently been uncovered as a result of a years-long effort to transcribe extemporaneous notes that were made during the debate. These documents can now be accessed in a collection at the J. Willard Marriott Library at the University of Utah and a new website called This Abominable Slavery. That is also the name of a book that is set for release this year by Oxford University Press about race, religion, and the battle over human bondage in antebellum Utah. The book is written by historians Lejeune Purcell Carruth, Christopher Rich, and Paul Reeve. And Reeve is with us today to talk about the documents, the website, and the coming book, and the troubling words of a man who is still revered in much of Utah today. Paul Reeve, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Paul, let's talk about the providence of the documents that are at the heart of much of your studies over the past few years and the team that brought them to modern light. This all starts way back way back in history with this guy named Sir Isaac Pittman, and then a legislative recorder from Utah named George Watt. Can you talk about these two people? Yeah. So Pittman develops a form of shorthand in the 19th century that was designed to allow recorders to capture near verbatim speeches. Uh, So it's an improvement over other forms of shorthand. And George Watt was a convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and uh, learned Pittman's shorthand. He was then appointed recorder of the 1852 legislative session in Utah Territory. And so he captured those speeches and debates in Pittman's shorthand, which remained in his collection untouched largely from 1852 until 2013. Yeah. So although it's not widely taught, it's no historical secret that slavery was legal in Utah. But how that decision came to happen came as a result of this debate that you've described that wasn't really well understood until recently. And that's because these records, as you've said, were sort of just being kept in storage until they were unearthed and transcribed by your colleague, Lejean Purcell Carruth, who's an expert in Pittman shorthand. When did this all start happening? When I was doing research for my book, Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness, uh, I was aware that there were prior scholars who had suggested Brigham Young gave a speech on the 5th of February, 1852 to the legislature, and some said 5th of January, 1852. And a lot of confusion as to what he said and the date even of of the speech. And so I was trying to sort of 
establish the chronological history of the legislative session and figure out if there was a Pittman version of Brigham Young's speech or speeches to the legislative session. And so I submitted a request to the LDS Church History Library asking if a Pittman version of Brigham Young's speech existed. And if so, you know, was it 5th of January, 5th of February? And that eventually led to the uncovering of not just his 5th of February 1852 speech, but a variety of other speeches in Watts' collection that had never been transcribed. Brigham Young's 5th of February speech, actually, Watt did transcribe at least a portion of it, but it was never published in the Deseret News or the Journal of Discourses. And so that led to the confusion among scholars. I think it's important to note here that when you actually make the request to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they didn't hesitate, right? They provided these records to you to be for the express purpose of transcribing them and, and unveiling these other speeches that have been lost to history. Yeah, no, that's exactly correct. And I want to give them full credit. You know, they had no obligation. I mean, Lejean Purcell Carruth is an employee of the LDS Church History Department. So, you know, they uh, paid her to transcribe them and then made that, those speeches available to me. I quoted from some of them in my book, Religion of a Different Color, and then, you know, requested to make them publicly available in a documentary history, which now exists on the website, but also to use them in writing this narrative history of the legislative session. And they said yes to all of that. So want to be perfectly clear, this is full cooperation, and they have as much interest as I have in just being transparent and getting this new information out uh, to establish and clear up you know, the historical record. As Lejean Purcell Carruth is working on these documents, and these words are emerging from history, having not been heard by human ears for nearly 200 years at this point. As a historian, that must have been just a hair-raising experience for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, after it became clear that there was a Pittman record of Brigham Young's 5th of February speech, but not just that speech, a whole variety of speeches that had never been transcribed. You know, almost every day was just sort of pins and needles for me. You know, will the gene send a new speech today? You know, what new information is going to emerge? It's what I've learned is it's really tedious and laborious process to transcribe these speeches. And what was still learning Pittman and he gets better over time. And so it's in the early stages of his Pittman. And so Legene has told me, right, it's it's not as clear in the, in 1852 as, as he is later. But, she, you know, so she has to work her way through all of that. And she produces them in just the raw language. There's no punctuation. They're not put into sentences. You know, there are missing prepositions, those type of things. And then I would take what she produced and put them into sentences so that they are are readable. And you know, any prepositions or insertions, you know, we put in brackets so that uh, readers can tell what was in the transcription and and what we inserted to make it readable into a full sentence, right? I'm going to give an example of that here from January 23rd of 1852. And I'm going to read this first without the brackets, and then I'm going to read it with the information that you inserted in, just to give people an idea of 
you know, what you had to do to make this readable. But also, I imagine that in the first version of this, people will be able to hear the general idea, if not very the specific ideas and the specific words. And then, you know, it just becomes more clear as you add the words. But let's try that out here. So January 23rd, 1852, Brigham Young says, in first place, with regard to slavery, inasmuch as I, in Bible, believe in ordinances of priesthood order of God, I believe in slavery. And then as you say, you've inserted these prepositions, which you know aren't included in Pittman shorthand, they're implied, and then a few other words that seem to have been necessary in order to make the sentences complete. And it reads, in the first place, with regard to slavery, in as much as I believe in the Bible, in as much as I believe in the ordinances of God and in the priesthood order of God, I believe in slavery. And then Young expounds upon why he believes Africans have been cursed by God. And he continues, I am a firm believer in slavery. He doesn't mince any words about this. He believes in this institution at this time. A couple of points of clarification. So yeah, that's right. And and that's right to a degree, right? So what we're able to establish, because we now have this full record of Brigham Young and his speeches, and we have them in context with uh, ongoing debate with legislator and LDS apostle Orson Pratt. Actually, we have a much more complicated view of uh, Brigham Young than just, I believe, in slavery and not denying that that's what he says in that 23rd of January speech, because it certainly is. But his use of language and his use of metaphor and his slippage in terms of slavery and servitude and his effort at actually striking a middle ground gets lost sometimes when you don't take it into context of the entire legislative record and the speeches that he gives. So what he's really arguing for, he's arguing against chattel slavery. He's arguing against the notion that human beings can be held as property. That's made clear in his 5th of January speech. Uh, and argues, in fact, that enslaved people in Utah Territory should be granted some rights. And if you have rights, you are above the condition of chattel. But he's also speaking out against what he considers to be um, you know, the evil abolitionists. Uh, he's against immediate abolition, and he's arguing for a middle ground. And the real question that's animating not just the 1852 legislative session, but 1850s United States politics is, can human beings be held as property? And remember, the nation is not able to answer that question without the loss of 600,000 lives and a civil war. And Brigham Young is attempting to appease Southern enslavers who have arrived in Utah territory with their enslaved, but also appease Northerners who suggest that human beings can't be held as as property, that this is a violation of the American founding ideals. And Southerners, remember, argue that the Constitution protects property and that enslaved people are, in fact, property. And Brigham Young, in his 5th of January speech, is uh, quite clear. He will not accept uh, human beings as, as property. And the bill that the legislature passes actually grants enslaved people some rights when we think in 21st century terms of free and unfree, right, 
those two stark categories. I know it's not wholly satisfying, and it wasn't wholly satisfying in the 19th century either, but it does elevate enslaved people according to the law above the condition of mere property. And, and if Young kind of gets at this even in the 23rd because he says – and this actually feels very eerily familiar to the debates that we're having today about these same issues. He says, the caption of this bill I do not like. I have altered it and inserted an act in relation to manual service instead of African slavery. So in, in a big way, this thing that we've been debating recently and for 200 years, you know, where – you know, the condition of slaves and, and the steps that were taken, as you say, maybe not satisfying steps, are being enunciated here. And then Young also does something here that I think we continue to hear today. He suggests in the same speech on the 23rd that enslaved people are somehow better off in that condition than they would be if they were free. This is an argument that continues even 200 years later when we're talking about this institution upon which our country was founded. Yeah, it's a paternalistic argument, uh, simply the notion that, um, you know, enslaved people are racially inferior, that they can't do for themselves what, you know, white people can do and therefore you know, enslavers serve in the position of parents, basically, that they care for enslaved people from birth till death, uh, providing a function for enslaved people that the argument was they couldn't provide for themselves. And, and you know, Southerners, as they develop this argument, this isn't Brigham Young's argument, but those in the South, as they develop this argument, suggest that, in fact, enslaved people are cared for from birth to death in a way that uh, northern capitalists are not caring for their laborers. If you break your arm in a factory in the north, you're just simply replaced by the next immigrant worker. And you know this argument develops that, in fact, slavery is more uh, humane and kind, which is not grounded in reality. It's just sort of the argument that exists. And Brigham Young is participating uh, in some of that in suggesting that you know, white enslavers are doing something for their black enslaved that the black enslaved are incapable of doing for themselves. That is just living free and taking care of themselves. So it's a paternalistic argument that's grounded in racism. And this paternalistic argument isn't absent from the gentleman who counters Young's argument either. This is Orson Pratt. Before we get to Pratt's words, let's talk about Pratt's relationship to Young and the LDS Church, because I think that's important. Yeah, so Orson Pratt is an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and also a legislator in the territorial legislature. And so Brigham Young and Orson Pratt have butted heads before this legislative session. As recent as 1847, when Brigham Young attempts to reorganize the Latter-day Saint First Presidency, Orson Pratt opposes that. So we know that they have butted heads before, uh, but historians were not aware of the way that they are butting heads in this legislative session until you know we have these new speeches that make it evident that that's what's going on. But there's some things that they don't argue about. Like Pratt, in his speech, doesn't argue with Young about this supposed curse placed upon Africans. He says, quite simply, I admit it. And... Part of Pratt's argument is also that since other nations had at that point abolished slavery, if Utah did legalize it, 
this was just really fascinating to me. His argument was, you know, it would be harder to convince those people of the righteousness of the Latter-day faith. So maybe to give Pratt the benefit of the doubt here, he's trying to make an argument that will win the day in front of a bunch of other Latter-day Saints. But to take him at his word, he's saying we should get rid of slavery because it's bad for finding converts. That's that's part of the argument that he makes. Yeah, no, that's correct. That's that's one of the strands of the arguments that he makes. He's saying, okay, let's look around the globe. Don't you know, don't you can't you see that slavery is on its way out around the globe? I think he's speaking specifically about the British Empire, which has outlawed slavery, but not without compensating enslavers, right? So mm-hmm. that's also a part of what's going on here. You know, compensating for their lost property, not compensating the enslaved, but compensating the enslavers, right? right? I think it's important to make a distinction here. So Pratt is saying that, yeah, I don't disagree that there is this potential curse in the Bible, right? But that is specific to a given time and place, and it does not pass down from generation to generation. He doesn't buy the existing argument amongst slavery's defenders and even, you know, in religious communities, Protestants are defending slavery using the Bible and suggesting that God, with the curse of Ham, brought slavery upon Black people, the descendants of Ham. That's how they understood it. And Pratt said, you know, that may be true. It's specific to a given time and place and does not pass down to the next generation. Those biblical curses, in other words, are not multi-generational. And And it seems all these other biblical curses that happened in the Old Testament that nobody believed still existed in the contemporary day. Right, right. So he rejects any sort of notion that 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 passes down and he will say, you know, can we take the innocent African, right, and bind them into slavery? So he's really reinforcing a fundamental Latter-day Saint tenet, which is something that Joseph Smith articulates. Uh, human beings will be held accountable for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. There is no original sin in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And Brigham Young, however, is holding the supposed descendants of Cain accountable for a murder in which they took no part. Pratt rejects that idea. They may be true in the Bible, right? He's just simply saying they don't apply in 1852. And then Pratt makes this impassioned moral argument as well, as well as sort of what I guess could have been described as the practical argument. Uh, He makes this impassioned moral argument that says – For us to bind the African because he is different from us in color is enough to cause the angels in heaven to blush. By the way, legislators don't talk this way anymore. I wish they did. Yeah, no, I it's it's uh, a part of the thrill of of this project, this kind of recovery in this 19th century uh, language. And Pratt has some fantastic sentences in, in his speeches. Young then responds a few weeks later with a speech where he articulates his belief in these dual roles as governor and prophet. And you've highlighted this speech because it really sets up what happens next with this debate. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Now, we know that Orson Pratt also speaks on the 4th of February, but tragically, George Watt does not record that speech. Brigham Young says, no one got up to speak until Pratt got up to speak, and he only got up to speak to stick his thumb into me again. So we know the debate is ongoing. Hmm. But it sets up then Brigham Young's speech the next day on the 5th of February. Which is what you called the worst speech in church history. Yes. I, I think it's just 
you know, it's drenched in racism. And the other important context is we know that Orson Pratt, in connection with the election bill, has advocated for black male voting rights in 1852 in Utah Territory. And so that's the other piece of the puzzle that helps us understand what Brigham Young says on the 5th of February, because Brigham Young is stridently rejecting that proposition by Orson Pratt. And we can now read this word for word on the website. But just to sort of recap this here, Young says, Blacks don't know how to vote. He lists other races that he says don't know how to vote. He says there isn't a man in all of Mexico that would know how to legislate for the benefit of the people. And then we get to this part about mules. This is hard. I mean, even knowing historically, you know, the way that people spoke and I, well, I suppose some people still speak about other races. This is hard to hear. Brigham Young says, they know no more about voting or dictating than a jackass does. We just as well make a bill here for mules to vote as Negroes or Indians. That's that's rough. I'm sure even as a historian, I imagine that's rough to hear. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like I said, you know, uh, I, I put these speeches into paragraph and sentence form and made them readable. And uh, doing that with the 5th of February speech means that I probably have read that more than almost anyone. Uh, and it was really heavy. It was really difficult. It's just drenched with that kind of bombast and drenched with racism. There's a lot of historical figures from our nation who said and did some pretty terrible things, particularly in relationship to slavery. Uh, George Washington enslaved hundreds of people. Jefferson enslaved even more. So is Young's historical place in line with other very flawed leaders in our nation's history? Or do we need to understand this as something meaningfully different because he wasn't just a political leader, but also a religious leader considered by his church, both then and still now, to have been a prophet? Yeah, I, I think the mixing of roles really complicates, uh, you know, Brigham Young uh, in terms of his views and attitudes towards enslaved people. And, you know, the interesting aspect of this is that the United States Congress outlaws slavery in all U.S. territories in 1862. So the law that you, Utah passes then lasts for 10 years, a decade. Mm -hmm. But the cursed racial identity that Brigham Young articulates for people of Black African descent, uh, which he argues bars them from priesthood ordination in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, drags on for almost 130 years. So the religious implications of what takes place in 1852 become more significant over the long term for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints than the 10-year act in relation to service, which is outlawed by Congress in 1862. So I think the mixing of church and state in this uh, legislative session has more of an implication 
on the religion itself and how it is viewed racially, even in the 21st century. Um, and Brigham Young begins that process by articulating this cursed racial identity for people of Black African descent, which takes on a life of its own and becomes entrenched in the LDS faith and uh, isn't done away with until 1978. I mean, I think sort of the notion that, uh, you know, religion can inform politics continues uh, to exist. And, and I think Brigham Young is expressing that in 1852. And, you know, I mean, that's also an American notion that exists outside of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, it's been a part of our understanding of what it means to be an American. The The state should not interfere with the religion, but religion can influence and should, uh, according to some people, you know, in the United States, can and should influence the politics. And yeah, and a certain- debate that continues today. I mean, this is this is very yeah. much. We're not that far away from 1852 in a lot of these arguments. Interestingly, no, no, no. I think that's right. Yep. That's Paul Reeve. He's the Simmons Professor of Mormon Studies and History in the History Department at the University of Utah and one of three authors of This Abominable Slavery, Race, Religion, and the Battle Over Human Bondage in Antebellum, Utah. Much of the source documents for which can be found online on the website of the J. Willard Marriott Library. Paul Reeve, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org slash UPR. Our producer is Nicholas Porath. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.